This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. New challenges await former Denver Post editor Greg Moore. He stepped down the first of the month after 14 years leading the newspaper. The Post won four Pulitzer Prizes during his tenure, but he also faced what he calls the downsizing of the news business and handling several rounds of voluntary buyouts and layoffs. And a great welcome to the program. Yeah, it's good to be here. When you leave a prominent position like this, one that you've had for as long as you did, do you struggle with your identity a little bit? You know, I'm not an editor anymore. What am I? Uh, you do struggle with it. You know, after 14 years, you know, the personas are sort of merged, you know. Um, you know, I was actually trying to update my LinkedIn profile a couple of days ago. And I sat around for a couple of hours trying to figure out how do I describe myself now? And I settled on communication slash management specialist, but I'm not even sure that does justice. And it certainly doesn't sound as good as editor of the Denver Post. All right. That label may be uh, evolving over yeah, the next few weeks. I think weeks. so. There was a moment several years ago at a baseball game mm-hmm. that changed the way you thought about journalism. What was that moment? Well, I was sitting at a, a Pittsburgh Pirates game with a friend of mine who runs the Pittsburgh newspaper, and you know, we were chatting back and forth, talking shop, and a little kid in front of us finally turned around and said, hey, excuse me, you guys work at the newspaper. We said, yeah. He said, well, you might want to get busy because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, died. And I went, what? This little kid on his phone was able to tell me a big story before I even knew it. And that's when I just realized that uh, the power had shifted that the the reader, the customer, they had as much access to information as, as I did. And that really, it, it became a matter of how do you present it? How do you do it smartly? But the, the fact that the news had happened was, was really uh, accessible to anyone. And how did that change your thinking or your management style? Well, I don't know if it changed my management style, but I will say one thing definitely changed. And that was, um, you know, I became a much more customer-focused editor. I am much more in tune with readers, much more responsive to them, because I realized that they had a lot more power, certainly a lot more power than what I was used to when I started in this business 40 years ago. That it was a two-way street. It was a definite two-way street. Not a dictate. Correct. From the newsroom. Correct. Uh, So at the Post in 2006, uh, those are the numbers we were able to get. The newsroom was 309 people. Something like that, uh, yes. 131 today. Hmm. So that's in a decade. Yeah. Are more layoffs coming? You know what? I don't I don't know. I I don't know. I know that uh, the the, the newspaper itself is working very hard to generate new revenue streams, uh, trying to figure out how to create new products that are going to help make money and avoid those type things. But um, it it seems to me that we're still in a period of um, of um, downsizing and and not just here in Denver, but I think all over the country. Um, I don't think that we've hit the bottom yet. Still in a period of downsizing. So you would anticipate some more layoffs? And let me ask you point blank. What I would say is is I just wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. It is not part of your reasoning, uh, having left the post, because more were coming and you didn't want to effectuate them? No. Okay. No, no. Uh, It was reported that you told your staff it's time for new challenges. Mm -hmm. Was your job done at the post? That is to say, did you accomplish what you had set out to do 14 oh, years ago? Yes, yes. Um, beyond my wildest dreams. Um, I think we're a very, very good newspaper. I think we serve our community very well. Um, I was really uh, proud that we had a, a bench where we had talented people step up when we did have to make layoffs and voluntary reductions. So, 
Yeah, and we did quality work. I mean, winning Pulitzer Prizes, being in contention, uh, no nine nine times overall in the last ten years. I think, um, you know, I, I walk away a very uh, satisfied person. You talked about new revenue streams, and your tenure included the creation of the Cannabis, right. which is the the blog. Although that seems something of a dismissive term, it's really an online paper in some ways yeah. that focuses on the marijuana industry and the culture around it. Did you see that as something of a salvo for the post? No, I well, not not really. I mean, I, I felt like um, legalized marijuana was going to going to be a game changer in this community. It was going to change the culture. It was going to change the economy. It was going to change policing. It was going to change communities. And we wanted to make sure we understood all facets of that business. And so, you know, we made that a paper-wide responsibility. We built the Cannabis, which is a website, um, so that we could have all of that stuff contained in one place and, and to be careful not to overwhelm the newspaper with pot news. I, we, were, we were very uh, aware that about half the population, half our readership really did not support legalized marijuana. So uh, making that a digital product was a, a smart move, we thought. But did you think about the ad revenue, the potential I thought a little revenue. bit about that, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I think anytime the newsroom can help generate revenue, um, that's um, a form of protecting the resources that we have. So, you know, back in the old days, we used to say the advertising department made the money, we spent it. And we used to laugh. Now we don't. We want to be part of the solution. And we um, we have been successful in generating revenue the for can- this company. Right. The cannabis, uh, according to Ricardo Baca, who runs it now, um, is self-sustaining. And does it actually generate profit? It generates uh, profit, not nearly as much as I think um, the publisher and other executives would like. But, yeah, it generates revenue. Mm-hmm. I can hear the the fathers and mothers of journalism <laughs> turning in their graves at the notion of talking about profit with an editor. Well, you know what? Uh, we've all had had to become uh, better business people. Uh, it's not enough just to, you know, edit stories and things like that. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I'm very familiar with numbers, more than I ever thought I would be. But I also think it's smart that I am. We're speaking with the former editor of the Denver Post, Greg Moore who has stepped down from that position after 14 years on the job and uh, many decades more in journalism. When the Rocky Mountain News went under in 2009, Mm. was that a scary moment for you? It was. It was. Uh, They were – we were in the same building and they were on the floor below us. There was a joint operating agreement. So one day they were there and literally the next week they were gone. 200 journalists out of work. And um, from that point on, it made it a lot easier to sort of make the argument that we have to change if we want to survive. And um, it was really hard to see them go. In an exit interview with the Colorado media blogger Jason Salzman, um, op-ed writer Alicia Caldwell worried that as budgets become tighter, it becomes harder to pay experienced journalists to produce sophisticated stories that require a deeper dive. Now, a little earlier, you talked about having a bench to replace some of those who had to take buyouts or who lost their jobs. But do you agree that deeper dives are more difficult today? Mm, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't agree with that. I how, think... how is that possible with, with less staff? Well, I mean, we still have experienced journalists there. Um, not everybody who comes in is, uh, you know, uh, just out of just out of college. So, 
Um, and we've been able to, to replace some of the people that we um, uh, bought out. So, so we've been able to bring in uh, experienced folks. And just last Sunday, there was a really extensive piece in, in the Post about uh, the uh, Brownstein Law Firm, one of the top lobbying law firms in the country. So that took weeks and weeks and weeks of reporting. And does that require then, if, if you're doing that with less staff, does it require a, a reprioritizing mm-hmm. of what the newsroom does? It does. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's happened is we got a lot better at picking subjects, um, figuring out exactly what's the appropriate amount of time to invest in it. Um, yeah. So we made better choices. And I think as a result, we've done better journalism. As we said, the Denver Post won four Pulitzer Prizes during your tenure, two for feature photography, one for editorial cartooning, and one for breaking news coverage. That was of the Aurora Theater shooting. Take us behind the scenes a bit for that that story, the theater shooting. What were those days like in the newsroom? Uh, Just uh, chaotic and never-ending. One of the most interesting things about it was the theater shooting happened at about 1230 in the morning, uh, Friday morning. The paper had already been put to bed. We didn't have another paper until Saturday morning. So much of the early reporting of the uh, theater shooting was done online. It was a digital-only operation for us. And um, it was just an incredible experience. And the mix of, of veterans and young people blogging, tweeting, uh, using social media, it was just an incredible, um, breath, uh, breathtaking thing to see. Indeed, the Pulitzer Committee made note of the Post's use of Twitter, Facebook, and video to cover the shooting, to provide context. But on the flip side, the immediacy of mm-hmm. those media also lead to the possibility for error. Uh, how do you balance that? You know, our our policy uh, have been and is uh, we don't report it unless we can confirm it. Let me just go back and say one last thing sure. about the Aurora, um, the, the, the immediate aftermath. A lot of people in our newsroom knew people who were either in that theater, who had been shot, uh, or, or who lost their lives. And it was it was just an incredible thing to see people working through their own grief uh, to, to make sense of this tragedy. It was really um, a very poignant moment. And I have deep, deep respect for the people that were able to sort of push through that and contribute to really what turned out to be an outstanding effort. Wow, the, the ties were that close oh, between yeah. people in the newsroom and the yes. theater. yes. Yeah. You mentioned that it happened you know, after the paper went to press. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the physicality of paper. Will there be a, a paper edition of the Denver Post in two years, five years, ten years? Certainly, I think in the short term there will be. And I'm, I, my guess is that, is that it will become a premium product for people who just absolutely want – um, the experience of holding a newspaper in their hands. A but premium product. Premium product. Something that, that they pay dearly for. They pay dearly for. Okay. They pay dearly for. It may even be a product that's on demand. But um, I think that for some people, uh, there will be a print product. But increasingly, I'm seeing it as a digital as a digital only operation uh, around the country. What's next, Greg Moore? I know you had trouble filling out that LinkedIn profile, which indicates to me that you don't necessarily have a specific position I yet. I'm, um, you know, I'm in the process of decompressing right now and picking up my children from school and binge watching television shows. And, you know, I'm doing a few speeches. I'm going to do a little consulting and then I'm going to just take my time and talk to companies that uh, I'm really interested in working for and, and see what happens. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Greg Moore, now former editor of the Denver Post.
Colorado and the West could learn a lot from Israel when it comes to water. That's according to author Seth Siegel, whom I spoke with last week. He says that while Israel is mostly arid, it's much better prepared when it comes to water management than the U.S. because it has invested in innovation for almost a century. Kevin Somerville of Denver called to ask how Israel's advances in water affect people living in Gaza and the West Bank. Do Palestinians in occupied territories have the same rights to water as Israelis who live in occupied territories? Siegel says Israelis living in occupied portions of the West Bank have the same rights as other Israelis, and their water is under Israeli control. Palestinians, by contrast, live under control of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. Neither is in as strong a position as Israel when it comes to water. The reasons are complicated, according to Siegel, who devotes parts of his book, Let There Be Water, to this question. Politics, finances, and culture will each govern the way societies run themselves in various areas, development, water. And this is true also between the Palestinians and Israel. History, he says, also plays a role. Israel took control of water in the West Bank in 1967 and developed wells and a supply network that Siegel says has significantly improved access to water for Palestinians. And Israel, under treaty, shares a significant amount of water with the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and also with the Kingdom of Jordan. In the case of West Bank, 55% of the water of the West Bank comes from Israeli sources. And how that water gets distributed and how that water gets charged and how that water gets policed, mostly that's in the hands of the Palestinian Authority and not in the hands of the Israelis. However, Palestinian water rights have been restricted since the founding of Israel. And by agreement in the 1995 Oslo Accord, Israel has access to much of the water resources found in the West Bank. As listener Jan Miller of Denver pointed out in an email to us, Gaza's water situation is worse than the West Bank's. Siegel says Palestinians in Gaza face a looming water and humanitarian crisis. And that is a crisis it's almost exclusively of Hamas's making. They are not properly policing, drilling into the aquifer underneath Gaza. Number two problem is that because the aquifer has been grossly overdrafted, seawater intrusion has started to affect the aquifer and it's become very saline, very salty. And the belief is that by the year 2020, the aquifer will be completely unusable. And now some updates. A bill to address offshore tax havens recently died in a Colorado Senate committee. It would have closed a loophole that allows some Colorado companies to hold revenue offshore. Democratic Representative Mike Foote of Lafayette was the House sponsor and has said that he'll try again next session. And another bill that would have banned so-called conversion therapy for people under 18 also failed in a Senate committee. Conversion therapy is a widely discredited practice that seeks to change people's sexual orientation. Republican opponents said the ban could limit free speech rights. There are all kinds of ways to speak to us through Twitter at Colorado Matters, on Facebook, CPR News. Comment at the bottom of stories at CPRnews.org or through the website, send us an email. You may hear that feedback later in this segment, Loud and Clear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A headline about Syrian refugees flooding into Europe struck a chord with our next guest, so much so that Alexandra Ruiz, who lives in Fort Collins, decided to trace the route herself 
from a refugee camp in Lebanon to resettlement in Germany. She invited a CSU grad student, Kyle Rasmussen, to join her. Their trip is captured in the new film El Wadi, A Journey of Hope. A rough cut of the film debuts next week at CSU's first human rights film festival. They join CPR's Nathan Heffel. Welcome to you both. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, Alexandra, what about that article made you want to take this journey? Yeah, I mean, I was coming back from a, a different trip, and I had just picked up a Time magazine, and they had done this whole spread, and... I think I was just looking at the faces and it just hit me kind of in my gut. And I was like, someone, I, I, someone has to tell this story. Not that people aren't, but I just wanted to be a part of it. And, um, it's so historical what's happening. And, um, I don't know. I just, I, I just was, I knew I had to go. Um, and I think that for me, a lot of it was my grandkids are going to ask me, like, where were you when this was happening? And I think I wanted to be able to say I gave whatever I had, whatever skill I had to contribute to this crisis. Well, could uh, you have volunteered with an organization helping the refugees? Why focus on a film? Yeah, I absolutely. There's a lot of volunteers. Um, I think for me, again, like my skill is in making films and and at that point I hadn't really seen anyone um, making the film the way we were going to make it so journeying with them the whole way um, and so I it felt like there's a little bit of a gap there that I wanted to fill in that way. Kyle uh, when Alexandra called you up and asked you to go on this journey with her a day after you said yes the attacks in Beirut happened then the attacks in Paris your families were very nervous. Uh, did did you waver in your decision to go after that, Kyle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when Alex first asked me, I knew in my heart my decision was a yes because, again, this is what my passion in is in filmmaking, and I want to be doing, using my skills to be able to to help the world in some way. And um, so I knew when Alex asked me that this was a fit for me. Um, and uh, But, you know, then you settle on it and you start reading the news because you start looking at all the things and what surfaces is all of the recent attacks, all of everything that's happening in the Middle East and through Europe. And it's just, um, it's very chaotic. And, you know, of course, for, I think for anybody who's, um, like for myself, loved ones and everything, it, it's going to be a little scary to have to go to them and say, hey, we're going to go and, and walk with these people. Um, because, and they have the same sort of ideas of what's going on over there. They're reading the same news. So naturally that's, um, it's a little terrifying. And you all started at a refugee camp northeast of Beirut, Lebanon. Was getting into the camp difficult? Did you encounter any security measures or or unsafe conditions getting there? Um, actually, no, I had been to Lebanon two years ago and I had, I, I knew a Lebanese man who had been working in a refugee camp. And so we called him up actually when we were heading down there mm. and he was going to translate for us and he just brought us in. Um, if you don't have someone who works within a refugee camp, you cannot get in. So we were, um, really lucky to be with him. We were the only Americans there or only people who weren't Lebanese or a refugee there. So, um, if you're not, yeah, if you're not with someone who works in the camp, you cannot get in. So, Kyle, describe what, what it was like to be there. What did you see when you were in that camp? Um, lots of children. Um, that's the first thing I would, I would point out. I mean, there were, um, in these camps, I think in this in the area of Bacaw Valley, there's uh, estimated about 50 camps, and each camp holds about 1,000 people. 
Um, so it just kind of puts into perspective and probably, I mean, you know, each family has, you know, between six and 12 kids. So these kids are just everywhere. And these, um, and these tents are built out of, uh, just raw materials that they just find. And, and the UNHCR, um, donates all of these um, materials for them to be able to build these, these, um, tents in these, in the, and, and establish these camps, which are, it's just land provided by farm farmers in the area. Um, so, um, it's really shocking. I mean, it's like, I'm sure people have seen photos and things of that, of these camps and, um, to see it with their own eyes was just, uh, really shocking. I mean, just tents upon tents upon tents and filled with people. And you were um, saying that the refugees are required to pay rent for these spaces. Yeah, they, um, I can't remember the exact amount, but the, these, um, the farmers and also, um, the, uh, the Lebanese government, I think is, is involved in, um, collecting some amount of rent. I don't know the exact number of that, that rent, but, um, they, uh, yeah, they have to, they have to pay rent for, for this land. And at the camp, uh, you both met Nadine Marcos. She's an aid worker who helps run schools for young Syrian refugees. Here's a clip of her from your film. Stop viewing them as just refugees and start just relating to them as normal human beings. Look into their eyes and ask them questions about who they are and what they love and what do they miss about Syria and just asking them questions, getting to know them, getting to know their hearts. Was that something that you had to confront during your trip, Alexandra, that preconceived notion about refugees that you may have had? Did you, did, did you have to change that going into this experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all have ideas of or stereotypes, uh, unfortunately, you don't want to, but you do about either the Middle East or just different parts of the world. And when you, when this is on the news constantly, you just assume it'll look a certain way or p- the everyone is an extremist or, or all Middle Eastern people are, are this specific way. And it's, that's just so not the case. And they're amazing, amazing people. I tell people all the time, if I could move anywhere, I'd go to Lebanon. Because the, they're just wonderful, wonderful people. Um, but if you are going to look at them in a stereotypical way, like, it, we had no story almost. You know, like, we really went in to know um, who they are. They're, they're people like you and I. And they have families and they brought us into their homes and they fed us and they just they over and over we heard people just thanking us for coming over um so when you look at them with compassion and love and just a, a, like these are people it just changes the whole crisis in a, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways you're not viewing them as um they're just a refugee trying to take someone's land but they're people that have been displaced by war and they're just trying to find a home this is Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with two young filmmakers from Fort Collins. Alexandra Ruiz and Kyle Rasmussen traveled to Lebanon last December. They followed Syrian refugees from there to Germany. Their trip is documented in El Wadi, A Journey of Hope. Segments of the film debut next week at the first ever ACT Human Rights Film Festival. Kyle, I understand that you guys camped out in, uh, in Macedonia one night. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Well, uh, this was uh, Alex's idea from the beginning. And I think that, um, you know, Alex had kind of warned me that we might be doing this when we started, but she, um, she wanted to step into the shoes of the refugees as, as best as possible in a way. I mean, we are, we're limited of course, and there's no way that we could do that completely because I mean, we're, you know, we're trying to travel from place to place. We have cameras, all these things, but, but we thought it would be a, a, 
a unique experience to, and also just something for us to learn a little about a little bit and empathize a little bit with these refugees, what they might be going through. Because, I mean, once they get into these European countries, a lot is unknown for them. Um, and a lot of times they might not be able to get into these refugee camps where they're provided amenities, food, a place to stay, warmth, all those things. So they just literally have to camp out, drop a tent in these countries, not knowing <laughs> if there's going to be a government official to come along and tell them they can't be there, all those things. So we experienced a lot of that. I mean, we were, we were, I mean, I, I don't think I slept the entire night. Just every time a car passed by, we were right next to the refugee camp. I mean, we were like wide eyed waiting for them to come over and, and say, Hey, you can't, you can't be here or, you know, hmm. <laughs> so, um, it was, it was a very, um, unique experience. One I wouldn't take back at all. And you asked the refugees a question while you were with them. And I want to play a clip of that. Are they hopeful that Syria will be redeemed and that they can go back? If God will, yes. And you say it was their hope in these camps and, and being with them and seeing them that impressed you the most about these refugees. Uh, Kyle, tell me more about that. Um, yeah, they, these people, I mean, have every reason to just give up, I think. And because, I mean, we talked to one woman who hadn't seen her parents in five years. I mean, I, I can't imagine that, right? And they have every means to be hopeless. And I think that these people, uh, it inspired something in me at least, just how hopeful they are. Um, and over and over again, I mean, this was not just even one interview. We asked them, what is your hope? And they said, our hope is God. Um, and that's just something that's, that's really fascinating. And they, I think it's something that we can all really kind of connect to as a people and, um, and relate to them as people as well. Sort of, again, like Alex talked about, get rid of those stereotypes and just look at them as a person. Alexandra, uh, was there ever a concern that you're being there? Uh, with them, of course, three Americans. They're, they're with you. You you have uh, uh, you know you're, you're, you you stand out to, to to put it mildly. Was there ever a concern that you might be endangering the refugees themselves? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I that actually no, I don't think that was a huge um, worry for us. Um, we were a lot worried about our safety. Um, we had this like stick huge sticky note right before we left, and we wrote down like a list of bad things that could happen. And the list was so long. We were like, this could happen and this could happen. Mm, and, you know, we kind of went through each scenario. Like we had a bodyguard at a couple points. Um, I, I think that once you get over there, especially in Europe, we're pretty separate. So they have their own trains, they have their own buses. Um, and so we weren't always right there with them. And Europe has done a pretty good job of, well, yeah good job of separating Hmm. um, their journey from the rest of anyone else's journey. So that aspect made it like we weren't always right there with them. Um, So I don't, I don't think we ever felt like we were putting them in danger. In in the short 15 minute rough cut, I viewed of your film before this interview. It, It seemed you moved the story forward, not only with the words of the refugees and the aid workers, but with your own interpretation of the events happening around you. I want to play you this clip. There was like a crowd of all these Syrian refugees who came up and they all wanted to talk on camera and and wanted to speak about the heartache and the hardship and how they're sleeping on the street and they don't have any food. We watch the news, we can see what different people are saying about it on TV, but we wanted to see for ourselves and we wanted to film it for ourselves. 
That was you, Alexandra, and third fellow filmmaker J.J. Fountain. Was placing your experiences and interpretations next to the refugees in the film a conscious decision? Yeah, I mean, we really wanted to step in and as 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 close as we could um, journey with them and and feel what they're feeling and um, walk where they're walking and eat what they're eating. You know, we just wanted to put ourselves as close to them as we could and relate it as well as we could. I think that that piece is what we felt like was missing when we went over there originally of like, if we could put ourselves in their shoes and then come back as three Americans and just say, this is what happened. This was our experience. Um, and, and we didn't feel nearly what they're feeling. Like I came home, you know, I come home to a house and people and they're still there. Um, so in some way it doesn't justify it fully, but yeah, we really tried to feel the emotions that they're feeling. And, um, we, we, we tried to throw our, our hearts even there with them. And there were many points where we were like, this is too much. Like I, I'm emotionally overloaded with what I'm seeing and I'm exhausted. And, and that's, that's just what we're feeling. I couldn't even imagine, um, what they're going through. So Kyle, you say when you got back home that there was a culture shock, what, what happened? (laughs) <laughs> it's a good question. I think it's one I'm, you know, you still process with too. Um, you know, for, for me, honestly, um, I got back and um, it was, the world doesn't stop, you know, here when you get home and everyone's still going about everything. And, and I think that for me, it was a kind of an eye opening experience to see like how, um, you know, I, I had this experience, I come back and it's like life just was, um, it's like nothing ever changed here. Um, so it's sort of that like reintegration process that I had to go through and Alex can speak, can probably speak to as well, but of trying to negotiate, you know, what's, what should my like response be in, in this and, and like, what's my purpose now? I mean, we have this film and we're producing this film, um, and, but, and this issue and these people more on a, um, I should say more have, have sort of planted themselves in my heart and it's something I think about. So I, you know, I even think about them to this day, like what are, what, are the, what is that person that I met doing right now? Um, you know, because these are, these are again, real people and they, I don't know what they're experiencing. I mean, we talked to a guy who was getting on a boat, um, while we were in Turkey, he was in one hour. Um, and, and he's just like, we became friends very immediately. And I see um, so that coming that's... back here to the U S, um, has, uh, just, just been negotiating, you know, how to, I guess how to think about that and how to talk about the refugees to other people. Ford Collins filmmakers Alexandra Ruiz and Kyle Rasmussen speaking there with CPR's Nathan Heffel. The two retraced the route to Europe of Syrian refugees. Their film about it is called El Wadi, A Journey of Hope. A Rough Cut debuts at the first-ever ACT Human Rights Film Festival next week at Colorado State University. You can see a trailer at cprnews.org. Coming up, an artificial pancreas. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. All parents worry, but for parents of kids with diabetes, it's constant, making sure their child's blood sugar is stable. Ten-year-old Alexis King of Aurora says problems can come up anywhere. When I'm doing schoolwork, I have, when I get lows, I go down to the office and get treated for it. When I'm high, I just relax and keep calm and drink water. She's talking about her blood sugar there. Her dad, Eric, says traveling is especially hard. 
making sure there's enough insulin and that they have all the necessary supplies. I think that that's one of the most difficult things is just staying ahead of the game and making sure we have everything we need for any type of situation that Alexis's diabetes could put us in. Well, a new device called an artificial pancreas could make things easier. Several companies are developing them. They monitor and deliver insulin automatically. Last week, Alexis King was one of 16 kids who joined researchers on the slopes of Breckenridge to test one of these devices. It is the focus of today's beta test about cutting-edge research in Colorado. Pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Greg Forlenza of Children's Hospital Colorado ran this study, and he says an artificial pancreas can ease the burden of diabetes. That's one of the main things we talk about is burden on both the child and the parents for dealing with diabetes um, all day, every day since they're diagnosed. And so the device that we had them on is an attempt to use some existing engineering ideas to help control the blood sugar. It's called an artificial pancreas or closed loop insulin pump. And the idea is that it's taking blood sugar information from a sensor all the time and then adjusting insulin rates all the time to help increase the amount of time that they're in range. It is rendering automatic that which had to be done uh, kind of manually by the child and very likely the parent at times throughout the day. Yes, that's the goal of it. And it's not something that's internal. So I, I hear uh, artificial pancreas, and I think something that's implanted, but that's not the case here. Correct. So a lot of people, when they hear artificial pancreas, think of a, a mechanical artificial organ like a, a mechanical heart or a Berlin heart or something like that. And it's really just the, the fancy name given to the concept of combining an insulin pump, a continuous glucose monitor, and then a very sophisticated computer program that actually runs on a cell phone that controls it. And the, the program is the main thing that we're testing because it's very complicated. I see. And what is the size of all of this? Uh, it's much smaller than people would think it is. An insulin pump is about the size of a pager, for anyone who remembers what a pager is. Okay. <laughs> um, and the program runs on a cell phone. One of the factoids that I like to tell people is that the cell phones we all carry in our pockets are six million times more powerful than the computer on Apollo 11. And so our cell phones that we use to take selfies and watch cat videos can do a lot more and they can actually run this program that, you know, 10 years ago would have had to be run on on a huge desktop computer. And so the kids have essentially a smartphone with them that yes. is, is running this program. You say that this program is really at the heart of uh, the study. Mm -hmm. uh, and does the pump itself differ at all from the traditional pumps? No, these kids are actually using uh, a commercial pump that just has good Bluetooth connection. Um, it's been run with four or five different uh, pump brands. And so basically, if a parent is listening to this, their child has diabetes, whatever pump their kid is on right now would be able to do this with the, the right software. And almost every company is approaching doing that within the next few years. Okay. Why skis? So that's a great question. Exercise is one of the major untackled variables in this sort of thing. There would obviously be changes in the body that probably affect insulin, huh? Yes. And so 
high amounts of exercise and lots of physical stress on the body affect how your body uses insulin and put a lot more demand on the system. And so one of the things that I always tell people when their child is diagnosed with diabetes is that you're not limited in what you can do with type 1 diabetes. And so I deal with a lot of high school athletes. We deal with college athletes. And so this setting allowed us to test the system in extremes of temperature, extremes of altitude, and extremes of exercise. And so we're able to test three things that we think might put strain on the system all in the same setting. This system, again, being uh, the smartphone, the app essentially that Mm -hmm. it's running, and the pump that it's attached to by Bluetooth, you say. Mm -hmm. And how did it perform in that rather extreme environment? Uh, And I guess I mean that both technically and in terms of the kid's health. So we just finished the study several days ago. So we don't have all the data. A lot of data like this takes weeks to kind of compile. But the first thing that I would say is that it was safe. Whenever you're testing new technology that's very different from what's currently being done, the main thing that scientists like myself, doctors, and the FDA want to see is, is the system safe? And we had no adverse outcomes as a result of participation in the study. So the math was not so off in the program that a kid went into some kind of shock or something. None of that happened. None of that happened. And that's always been the FDA's first concern is that by turning over decision-making from a parent or a doctor to a computer, that something unpredicted would go wrong. And that didn't happen at all. The children were all completely safe. You know, it's one of these things where you only pay attention to when there's a problem. And so you feel like that's going on. And then at the end, you get the data. And it's remarkable how good it is. And so I had several children tell me that anecdotally, their blood sugar hasn't been this well controlled since they were diagnosed with diabetes. And we asked the kids at the end, would you wear this at home? And all of the children that I asked said yes. And if they had not had the system, how often would they have had to stop from the skiing and go to mom or dad or I, I suppose if they're empowered to do this themselves and, and do some kind of test or monitoring? We had to do a lot of that in the study. In any case. OK. <laughs> but but if, this, if this technology were to work as, as you envision... Um, so typically what people have done with exercise is actually just run their blood sugar too high. And so the goal for your blood sugar for a child this age, let's say, is about 80 to 180. And what people have typically done is they just eat the entire time they're exercising like this. And so they run their blood sugar in the 200s and they feel kind of fuzzy and out of it. And then it sets up bad habits. And so the goal of this is to make it so that you don't have to do that. If you want to keep your blood sugar well controlled, typically you would have to stop every hour, every half an hour and, you know, test or eat something during exercise like skiing. And so the goal is to incorporate that information to make it so that the system just adjusts for exercise like the body normally would in someone without diabetes. Fascinating. In other words, for those with diabetes, it's possible that exercise, which is good for you, (laughs) could lead to bad habits because... Uh, with In the absence of, of information, you just kind of load up on sugar. Yes, that's something that some people uh, do, a lot of kids do, and a lot of parents do, because the risk of being too high is less than the risk of being too low. But it's one of these things where you don't want it too much or too little. It needs, it's Goldilocks theory. It needs to be just right. Were there hiccups? Um, anytime you do a research study, there are always hiccups. That's 
kind of the the issue. The system that we're, we were using in this study is still the research grade system, not the commercial grade system. And so the Bluetooth connections tend to drop more than you would expect. With well, that happens device. in my car too. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so, but with uh, with an artificial organ, though, it needs to be perfect. And so, w- as we move towards commercial devices, it will get there. And what is the timeline for something that would be commercially available? So what we've been quoted by other people um, in the industry is within the next one to two years. There's about five to seven different companies that are all competing to come out with devices first. The device we were working on has a projection date of sometime in 2017. And how does the cost compare to a traditional pump? We would hope that it is very similar. What we're doing in this area is all engineering-based. It's basically adding more programming to the device. The hardware is the same. And so I would expect that it would be very similar to what current devices cost. And we believe as physicians, in terms of justifying it to insurance companies, that the overall cost of healthcare would go down because you're keeping people safer. Emergency room visits would go down. Hospitalizations would go down. And so it's, we believe, very cost beneficial. And that's not even including the long-term health benefits of having less complications from diabetes. And I suppose if you accounted for the the time that parents and kids invest, there's a savings there. Oh, tremendously. And so that's the goal is to make it so that the technology makes your life less stressful and easier. So that you could tell people who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, you'll set it and forget it. It'll be a while before it gets there, but that's the dream. Um, That's what I would love to say when we have families newly diagnosed is this can fix the problem. You just have to know how to use it. Greg, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. Dr. Greg Forlenza is a pediatric endocrinologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. The study we talked about is a project of the Barbara Davis Center at the University of Colorado, Denver. Coming up, how to detect a stealth beer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The craft market accounts for about 10 percent of beer sales, and that's set to double by 2020, according to The Wall Street Journal. So the biggest names in beer are getting into the craft game, either buying up small breweries like Anheuser-Busch's purchase of Breckenridge Brewery or putting out their own products. Think of Coors Blue Moon label. These have been called crafty or stealth beers. So how can you tell who's behind a given brand? Well, there's an app for that. It's now available for Android. I spoke with its creator, Barrett Gressy, a few years ago when it was launched for the iPhone. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. I want to ask first if this distinction really is important or if it's just for beer snobs. I don't think it's just for beer snobs. Um, I, I think it's important. I mean, we made it because I was standing in in the middle of a, a beer aisle. And I remembered a documentary I watched called Beer Wars that had a, a wonderful infographic that circled all of the brands that you thought were owned by different companies, but that were actually just owned by a, a few small select uh, number of brewers or, or beverage conglomerates. Mm. And then I thought to myself, there's got to be an app for finding out where the actual craft beers are. And uh, after about 15 minutes of frustration, I realized that there wasn't. Um, so at the very least to me and, and to uh, uh, a small number of other people who want to 
know and and have that information available, uh, it's important. And what's driving that quest for the information? Is it the authenticity of, uh, you know, a mom-and-pop brewer? Is it the taste? Uh, What's driving your interest? My personal interest is, uh, I mean, I like supporting the little guys. Uh, I like supporting the people that that decided to to start something like this out of pure passion, and uh, it's it's tough. It's tough to find that market share. It's tough to get that that space on the shelf. Uh, other people have different motivations, though. I think beer is very very personal. So for some people, it is support the little guys. For some people, it is damn the man. And and for <laughs> other people, it's it's a belief that there is a a higher quality threshold for craft beers and and microbreweries. In just a few moments, I want to talk about what defines a craft brew, because you, you have to come up mm-hmm. with a, a definition, you know. But first, you know, how, how would someone use the app? How, how did you make it function? We wanted to make it as simple as possible. So uh, there are two options within our app. You can either scan a barcode, or if you're sitting at a pub, you can just search by brewery. Uh, and it'll tell you, you know, just by the brewery name, is this a craft brewery or is this not? For us, it, the, we wanted to, to make it as easy to get within you know, five or seven seconds, the answer and the information that you were looking for. It's a lot of data to put in, isn't it? Uh, it is. I did it all by hand. <laughs> and then I'm thinking of all the beers that are only available in smaller areas and regions. It's quite a task. Yeah, we, we were very fortunate in that we, we decided early on not to invent our own definition. We, uh, we decided to go with the uh, Brewers Association's definition of craft brewery, which means that we didn't have to create and then the, the more important part for us, defend our decision making in what we considered a craft beer. Well, let's talk about those, um, what we said are called stealth beers or crafty beers. <laughs> I think a lot of folks know about Blue Moon uh, being yeah. a part of Miller Coors. Um, and then there's uh, the competitor to that, Shock Top, right, made by InBev. Mm-hmm. What are a few other examples that have surprised you? Uh, well, actually, just a couple weeks back, I was I was surprised. I was standing in our supermarket, and I saw a beer that I'd never seen before called Third Shift. And I was looking all over the beer and the packaging to try and find some indication of, of whether it was a, a new craft brewery, maybe from a, a local, I, I live in Los Angeles, so a, a local LA craft brewery that was able to distribute. And I kept finding this band of brewers name, brewed by the band of brewers, brought to you by band of brewers. Oh. Um, and I, I looked that up and it turns out that brand, band of brewers is just a Miller Coors distribution brand. Uh, and that Third Shift is, is a Miller Coors brand. Third Shift. Uh, yeah. any, any others? You, unless you, you unless you knew how to look for that, you'd you'd never know where to find that information. Yeah, there was a bit of gum shoeing there. Uh, any other examples you'd find? Well, Blue Moon and and Shock Topper are the big ones. Yeah. Um, there's a if you look at Lining Kugels, for instance, uh, that's a Miller Coors brand as well. Um, one of my actually favorite non-craft brands uh, is one called Unibrew out of Canada. Um, that's owned by uh, uh, the company that owns Sapporo. Um, that said, you know it's still great beer, but it isn't craft beer. But isn't it possible for big brewers to do small batches? It, it strikes me that the definitions here get a little fuzzy. Is it possible? Yes. Um, is it economically viable? My sense says no. It doesn't really make any sense for Anheuser-Busch or Miller Coors 
to spend the time and energy and marketing and distribution effort to create a thousand barrels of something um, unless it's going to be a test flight for a much larger nationwide or international distribution. So back to the definition of a craft brew, how big can you get and still fall under that category according to the definition you followed? According to the definition, uh, the brewery can't produce more than six million barrels of beer a year. Six million? Um, That sounds like a lot. Yeah, it does sound like a lot. Um, But if you look at in 2012, the the largest craft brewery was Boston Beer Company, makers of Sam Adams. Um, And I believe they only did about two and a half million barrels of beer. Whereas if you look at somebody like Miller Coors, I believe they did 19 billion barrels of beer. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Barrett Gressy co-founded the Craft Check app. He says since we spoke, it's been downloaded about 50,000 times. It's now available for Android. That's Colorado Matters for today. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us.